Hello, everyone. How are you doing on this wonderful Friday? I hope you are all good. Thank you so much for joining me live here. Um, let's not waste any more time. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Dr. Michael P. Masters. Michael, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm not bad at all. Thank you. Sorry, I'm just getting a message that my internet's dying a bit. So my yeah, you were chunking on my end my too. Yeah, I think that should help a little bit. Um, yeah, I have to I have to do different settings depending on, on what I'm doing. I've just been doing some research before I jumped on. So apologies, everyone. So Michael, yeah, like I said, thank you so much for joining me. I've really been uh, looking forward to this conversation. So to start with, I just wondered if you'd be able to just give us a little bit of a background on yourself and, and how you got to the, the point of where you're at now with the biological anthropology. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've always been interested in science and um, remember getting magazines as a kid, uh, reading them intently. And uh, so I, I guess I've always been drawn to science in general. But as far as biological anthropology goes, I started out in physics and astronomy as an undergrad and wow. uh, switched to bioanth probably my late sophomore, junior year, and stuck with it ever since. Um, went to grad school, got to travel around to different dig sites in South Africa, two different summers. And, Southern France for a, a season working down there. And yeah, just traveling around to museums, universities throughout Europe and Africa, collecting data uh, for my PhD. And um, now I teach at Montana Tech. It's a science and engineering school in the Pacific Northwest. And uh, yeah, still keeping up with uh, research and publishing with regard to my field, but um, kind of obviously, which is why I'm here to talk about the UFO side of things. Uh, dove into yeah. that about seven or eight years ago. And um, yeah, it's been it's been a really fun side project, I guess you could say, uh, just researching yeah. the, the, the fascinating aspects of this phenomenon. It's been uh, really enlightening and very, uh, a very good complement to the other research that I do. The two dovetail pretty nicely, as it turns out. Yeah, absolutely. And you said about six or seven years ago, was there a specific case that drew you into the field of you, you know, UFOs? Because obviously that's pre twenty seventeen with when it already blew up, as it were. So yeah, what 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 was it specifically? Was there anything? Uh, yeah, it was getting tenure and the protections right. that come with it. I I'd been <laughs> bouncing around this idea of time traveling humans since I was eight or nine years old. And I, I knew I always wanted to look into it more, but it, yeah, it was pre-2017 and it was still taboo. So I waited until I had those protections in place. Um, I got tenure or knew I would have it soon. I started working on this before I got tenure in 2015 and then uh, got promoted to full professor a couple years after that and then published the book a couple years after that. So it's kind of this long-term plan. But no, there wasn't any specific case that brought me in or any major event. It was right. really just this sort of background desire that I had to pursue this further. And um, it seemed like the appropriate time to start working on it, knowing it would take, I didn't know it would take seven years to write the book, but um, 
it, it did. And I'm, I'm kind of glad I timed it the way I did, uh, especially because the New York Times article really opened a lot of doors for researchers like myself who yeah. were victimized by the stigma and shame that goes along with this. And it's obviously still there to some extent, but I feel like we've moved past that uh, much more in the last yeah. two to three years. Absolutely. Yeah. So you had this theory that you wanted to write about. Did, did it originally, did you know it was going to be a book or did you think maybe at first it could be a paper? Yeah, I did actually. Um, a paper made sense. And then two things happened. I realized that there was just too much content to summarize in one paper. And where would I publish it? Their sure. academic journals weren't taking anything that had anything to do with UFOs and especially this, uh, the, the beans associated with them. And we're still kind of at this point where, yeah, okay, UFOs are real, but can we talk about the beans that are seen in association with them or during abductions or contactee experiences? So there's still a little bit of taboo surrounding that. We don't have clear video evidence of these individuals that are piloting the craft yet. So yeah. it's still a more tenuous aspect of the argument, but if we can take seriously the thousands, tens of thousands of people who have encountered these beings and look at patterns in the data, I, I think we can start to make some informed guesses as to who they are, where they're coming from, or potentially when they're coming from in this case. Yeah, absolutely. So would you mind sort of giving us an overview of your theory and about uh, about uh, what it may entail and that? Because, you know, I'm, I'm aware of it and it's fascinating, but I think it'd be good if everybody kind of heard you know how it came about and and grew into to becoming the subject of a book sure yeah i i avoid calling it my theory because a lot of other people have been arguing this for well, long before i was born i mean I, in in my new book um there's i try to list everybody i could possibly find who's put this forth in one capacity or another and really it goes back to the 40s is some of the first evidence i've found of people discussing this potentiality, but my own origin story, like I said, started when I was eight and uh, I overheard my father talking about a UFO encounter that he had before I was born, but he was telling some friends about it that were over at our house. And then like most sensible people of that time, he got Whitley Strieber's book, Communion. And uh, I remember one day looking up at the the living room shelf and seeing that, that quintessential gray alien form and just kind of wondered if there could be a, a connection. I had this mental image of a early hominin, a modern human, and then uh, seeing this alien for the first time just sort of made me wonder if there could be some connection there. And, and so I was mostly coming at it from the biological side even then, which is why it made sense to switch my major and uh, as an undergrad, and I'm glad I did because it turns out a lot of other people are looking at this possibility from a physics standpoint. Uh, Jack Sarfati is, is one example, and yeah. Rich Hoffman uh, is another example, head of the SCU. So it, it sort of complements what these other researchers are doing who are also making a case for this. Um, and even in pop culture, the ideas come out quite a bit. Um, so, yeah, for me, it, it, it was about looking at that that human evolution side and and really if if you look at the last six to eight million years of hominin evolution the one main trend 
in our cranial facial anatomy is that we've had an increase in the size of our neurocranium, a decrease in the size of our face. Our brains have gotten bigger, more rounded, we're more yeah. bulbous headed now. Uh, cranial globularity is what, what that's called. So really, regardless of where we lived, what time period, what our social political organization was like, these same trends persisted. So I just argue that if they continue into the future, which they're likely to do, that we're going to look uh, like these quintessentially gray alien forms. But it's important to point out that the the majority of cases, at least based on the research that they did in the Dr. Edgar Mitchell free study, are, are human. They're not even described as grays. They're described right. as human, entirely yeah. human, just like us. After that is the short grays and the tall grays and then these other forms. So all, all of these three groups are hominin. They're upright, walking, bipedal, hominin forms. Um, so I, I don't think we can ignore that. And then it brings up questions about whether or not we would get that form on another planet with a different gravity, different atmosphere, different chemical and biological composition, different coding system, potentially yeah. silicone or carbon based. There's so many factors that go into making us unique on this planet. I don't think it's likely that it would happen the same way that we'd get something so similar to us, but just slightly more advanced than our right. technology. I think uh, a more parsimonious solution, kind of the Occam's razor scenarios that they're, they're just awesome or evolved form, both biologically and technologically. Yeah, I mean, I, I see where you're coming from. It makes sense when you think about it like that, compared to a space-time manipulation traveling from another solar system or galaxy or or universe. So, um, so if that's the case, do you think there's a specific what system they may use to do the traveling in? I mean, you say you do have you ha or you have had a background in physics. Have you tried to integrate that into your well, like you said, not your theory, but into this theory to kind of give it some weight. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I've really kept up with the literature the best I can. Um, there, there's still, at least in the, the public forum, a debate about whether or not backward time travel is even possible. But if you look at the literature, there seems to be broad consensus that it is. And if there's nothing in the laws of physics that prohibits backward time travel, we're likely to eventually figure out how to do it based on our track record of accelerating technological innovation, and physics and engineering, but also material sciences, which I think is going to be a big part of the equation. So really what I've done is just try to synthesize the, the research that's been done to demonstrate how this might happen. And Really, since Einstein published his paper on general relativity in 1915, almost instantly there were solutions to his 10 field equations that showed how we might create these closed timelike curves. They showed it's possible, right. but then also went on to demonstrate how we might actually do it. And, and what's interesting about it, and an argument that I make in, in presentations oftentimes, is that we have this um, idiom in the biological sciences that form follows function. You can see it in the form of all of the different morphological components of an organism. You can deduce what the function is, even if they're fossils, they're not living entities where you can see them using these things. Right. And, and the same would seem to apply to these crafts, especially the, the disc-shaped craft. There's obviously variation in the form, but the, the most common one is a disc shape. And, and if you look at the solutions to his field equations, going back to Lenz and Thurine, 
Van Stockham, uh, Godel, and especially Frank Tipler with the Tipler cylinder, he's describing essentially a UFO, where if we take this long cylinder and shrink it down to a ring, and if it has the right mass and the right rotation, um, the right amount of energy, you can create these closed timelike curves. So the fact that the historical literature on how we might create a time machine is very similar to the description of the majority of these craft seems to indicate that the the form of these these disc-shaped crafts has the function of warping space-time and, and going backward in time. Yeah, excellent. Do you think that maybe if, if it is indeed a time travel thing, do you think that there are different stages of the future that they've come back from? So there could be, you know, some from a few thousand years, some from hundreds of thousands of years, all coming back to our time simultaneously. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I would put it even closer than that. I, I'm wow. starting to think based on research I'm doing for this new book that it might be a few hundred years wow. when we start to have the capability to do this. And, and if you think about it, if if this was theoretically a time machine that crashed into Roswell in 1947, we've already been back engineering this technology. And initially we might not have known it was a time machine, but we'd still try to figure out the anti-gravity propulsion system and the other characteristics of this ship and eventually realize, oh wait, they can manipulate space-time as described in so many different contactee experiences as well, especially those that were close to the ship or in the ship. So if, if we know that's what it is and we have an example of this thing from the future, it's only a matter of time before we create that same thing that came back and crashed in 1947 and continues that self-consistency in the loop across these different points in time. Um, beyond that, there's a number of cases where it, it's just humans that come out of these ships wearing uniforms similar to what our modern day military members wear. Um, there, there's one case in particular from here in Montana that I talk about in my new book and Joan Bird also talks about in her book, Montana uh, UFOs, where this fellow's up mining gold a couple hours from where I live up near Helena, Montana. And he comes around, there's this UFO getting water out of one of his sluice, sluice ponds. And this fellow comes out, human man, uh, speaks to him verbally, vocally, not using wow. telepathy or anything, and says, oh, hi, didn't know anybody was here. He kind of surprised us, but do you mind if we take some water? Explains how they use it to extract the hydrogen as a fuel source. Takes them onto the ship, explains how their uh, electromagnetic anti-gravity system works, shows them all the components, which, you know, he's a miner in the early 1900s. He doesn't understand all of this, but he tried to write as much down as he could because he knew it was important. He knew it was getting some very esoteric information. But it's one of many cases where you have a human who looks exactly like us, who's using technology that doesn't really seem that different from what we're using now, which makes me think, yeah, there, at least some of them are coming from a more proximate time period. But then once you get into the, the grays, especially the short grays, the tall grays, maybe even the reptilians and, and mantis-like creatures, maybe they're from a very distant point in our evolutionary future. So it's not likely once we have this technology, we're just gonna get rid of it. We're probably gonna continue to use it and continue to go back to different time periods. So we'd expect to see temporal variation in the form of not just the beans, but their craft. Maybe the triangles are, from a more distant point, 
and our technological future. I mean, maybe it helps explain the variation in both their physiology and also their technology. Yeah, that does make sense. Did you ever come across any kind of paradox issues or anything that sort of halted you and made you have to kind of rethink certain aspects of it? Because, you know, that does come up a lot when people talk about time travel. Yeah, it does. Um, but a lot of that is just misconceptions about the way in which time works. Uh, right. Many are derived from really bad plots in movies. I think Back to the Future ruined a whole generation <laughs> on the the mechanisms and the effects of time travel because it, it right. confused people because it didn't make any damn sense. So they're just like, oh, if I go back and change something, I'll disappear from picture. That's that's yeah, it's dumb. Um, <laughs> there are others who who have done it well, and you're starting to see that more. But if you really get into uh, the the aspects of Paradoxes that are usually mentioned, consistency paradoxes, where you go back in time and if you change something that it didn't happen, and how do you know you're going to change it? What happens if you kill your grandfather or grandmother before they gave birth to your parents and so on and so forth? But in a, the context of the block universe and block time, which is the dominant model among physicists, there, there aren't paradoxes in this sense. Everything remains inherently self-consistent. If you're alive, you didn't kill your, your grandparents, and there's no way that you can do that. Anything that you did in the past, any change that you feel like you're, you're making, simply because of the way time operates in the block universe, any effect already manifested itself before you left to go back to that point in the past. Any sort of ripple effect or butterfly effect, all of those changes occurred. You're just going back and doing the thing you had always done in that position in fourth dimensional space time. So um, you start to actually get paradoxes when you look at it in the context of the multiverse, though, the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, where you can create different timelines. And then some of those consistency paradoxes come into play, um, where you, how would you know to change that if in this timeline, it didn't actually happen. Sure. Um, but it's, it's sort of a still a fringe theory. I'll probably get some hate mail for saying that. But uh, there are some issues with the multiverse. Most physicists adhere to the block time model, and, and everything seems to stay consistent within uh, within this particular model. So I, I mostly focused on that for the book, but do acknowledge that as our, our knowledge of space and time continues to evolve, we might have to modify that. Um, but sure, I don't That's know. Kind of one thing I wanted to touch on was like you say it took quite a few years to write the book and you must have seen an, an evolution of that theory over those years and putting more pieces together. Do you see that changing now and, and still moving forward, you know, or, or do you kind of put a line under it and move on to something else? Um, yeah, I mean, what, what's interesting about it is, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you really have to be cautious of confirmation bias because you can easily only look for things that back up your model. Um, but but I early on, I printed out a list of all of these logical paradoxes and these logical fallacies and kept it on my desk, consulted it at least, you know, once a month or so just to make sure I wasn't falling into any of these traps. And confirmation bias was the one I was worried about the most. Sure. But with that... Uh, sort of self-governing aspect to this, the, the more I learned about it, the more things just kind of started to make more sense. Even looking at 
these things that deviate from this model. And I try to do that more in this next book is look at specific case studies in the context of what makes sense in this extra tempestrial model, but what makes more sense with the extraterrestrial hypothesis or ultra terrestrials or interdimensional, any of the other explanations for this phenomenon. So it's a critical approach to this based on some well-known and lesser known case studies. Um, but no, I mean, there wasn't really any point where I had to stop and say, wait, this doesn't make sense anymore. Um, things just, kept sort of bolstering it. Well, one good example is um, learning about Jim Penniston's encounter right before sure. I published the book. And I threw in a paragraph in a section where it fit perfectly because I'd already been talking about this uh, issue of, of uh, genes and chromosomes and, and just a homogenization of our, our human population to the point where if this trend continues, we're likely to have problems with an increase in homozygous recessive traits, uh, essentially a system of global incest where we don't have new gene variants. The only place to get them would be in the past where we can go back and find haplogroups and haplotypes that didn't make it in the future. So I'd already made this argument. And then I read about Jim Penniston and he's told specifically uh, through this binary code, take it for, for what it's worth, but that they're coming back because of problems with reproduction to get chromosomes and genes. So I'm like, all right, well, throw that in there because it's a very different source uh, a very different way of approaching this but we're saying the same thing for potentially the same reason so there's been a lot of things like that um but i also acknowledge like like betty hill's star map for instance sure. you can't just ignore that you know no. so i kind of break that down and look at it in the context of what what she was told how it fits with celestial maps and things like that um so yeah i, don't, I certainly don't claim to have the answers um but I, I think that this model is worthy of consideration and it does help explain many aspects of this phenomenon. Yeah, no, totally. I think that we've seen, you know, for so many years we had the extraterrestrial hypotheses and now obviously we're swamped with so many. And I think that's because they are all valid, you know, and they're being looked at properly. Did you ever have any help uh, along the way where you, you needed someone else to kind of look at it so you could take a step back or, you know, or, or was it just purely taboo and stigma left, right and center? No, I had a ton of help. Um, oh, cool. I'm, yeah, I'm really lucky that I ended up where I did. Um, <clears throat> I had a research assistant for a long time, a paid research assistant who uh, helped me kind of research some, some cases, uh, research some aspects of time travel. She she was a, a, was she a mechanical engineer, I believe. So it sort of fit with what she wanted to do anyway. Right. So she sort of dug deep early on into different theories about how we might time travel um, and, other, and people that are working on it now in, in the literature. Um, and, you know, I went to the chair of my department a few years before I published the book and said, hey, I'm writing a book about UFOs, uh, whether or not it could be an aspect of time travel, future humans coming back. Just want to give you a heads up in case there's some fallout. Uh, and he looked at me and shook his head. He said, that's, that's our job. That's what we're supposed <laughs> to be doing is asking questions like that. And then he just turned around and walked away. Like it was the dumbest wow. question he'd ever heard. <laughs> and I was like, well, at least I got support from my chair. I mean, who knows what's going to happen further up the administration. Um, but, but they were super supportive too. The book came out 
uh, got some immediate attention in the national and international press. Um, one of our big um, news agencies here that I don't think you have in the UK for what are probably obvious reasons to you, Fox News, they uh, picked up the article that came out from another source. The chancellor of my entire university saw it. I went up to get my 10-year service award, and he shook my hand and said, hey, I saw that article. It's so great. You know, congrats on, on the book. And I'm like, sweet. All right. Well, I guess everybody's on board. So, yeah, I mean, I was able to have paid research assistance. Um, the, the way the book was actually published, uh, a woman in technical communications needed a master's project. Uh, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this on a, a podcast before, but I owe her a, a deep gratitude. Um, and she had to pick between doing a pamphlet on a new carousel in town or formatting this book, knowing nothing about formatting at all. Wow. And she probably regrets this decision, but she picked my book. And um, yeah, we both went on a wild ride with that one, learning about God, all of the intricacies of laying it out and, and the formatting, the editing. Um, but she was a huge help, uh, very happy that, that she contributed. And then I did have peer reviewers as well because it was really based heavy in the science. So I had a, a peer reviewer who was also a biological anthropologist to kind of cross-check my own stuff. And then uh, someone who's taught quantum mechanics and thermodynamics for 25 years, and then uh, also a PhD in biology. So they were very critical of it and uh, really added a lot and, and pointed out some things that, that needed changed that I overlooked. So yeah, no, I'm, I'm very grateful for all of the people who have helped over the years. That's really positive to hear that, that hear that because you know, you, the stigma and taboo, like you said yourself, it is still there and we're trying to get through it. And I know the scientific community as well are really, you know, we've seen them start coming forward, talking about it. And that's, I think, all we really want to see going forward. So that's yeah, really all, positive. All, all these things I described to were before that. Like when yeah. they were doing these peer reviews, it was before the New York Times article wow. came out. So, yeah, they're, they're really, I, I appreciate their open-mindedness to, to do that. Um, and I, I think, you know, we oftentimes create this false narrative that everyone in academia is like, no, I'm not touching UFOs, I'm not touching aliens, but it's it's not really the case as much as you would think. It's just that the academic press, the, the journals, the publications won't touch it, grant agencies won't touch it, but a lot of us are deeply interested in this, and we're starting to come out more because we can, but even at this time, before the stigma started to wane, a lot of people were still super keen on it, um, one of the top researchers here at my institution um, massively supported. He's, he's always been interested in UFOs since he was young, stayed up like until three in the morning, was on coast to coast one night, just, you know, went texting back and forth with him during the interview. And, wow. um, you know, he's, he's, he's got more grants, more patents than anybody on this campus. So I, I think, I think it's really more individual than just academics as a whole. No, that's that's fair enough. That again, that makes more sense. Um, now, listen. Along your journey, did you ever get to have discussions or interviews with actual experiences or people that have you know witnessed these craft and you know just to kind of give you a better picture of it all? Yeah, yeah, quite a few. Um, especially after the book came out, 
going to conferences and setting up the little table with books and things. Got to talk to, I uh, can't even guess how many people over the last couple of years, but um, yeah, a lot of repeat contactees, people have had experiences in their families uh, over generations and yeah, a lot of variation in how they perceive those experiences. The majority anecdotally, of course, seem to be pretty okay with it for the most part. Uh, some are like, I wish these things would just leave us alone. Um, but, but I found that that's relatively rare, I guess. And, and again, the free foundation study supports that, that most people, especially people only have one experience really are freaked out by it. But as it happens more and more, they actually come to enjoy these interactions and want them to continue. So, um, yeah, it's been a lot of variation. A lot of people honestly have told me that, uh, after reading this book, they're more okay with it that before, especially with the anal probe thing, it's, it, it really violates you in, in such an intimate way. Um, especially with women, with all of the gamete extractions, and fetal extractions, in some cases, like it, it, it's rape. It's, you know, it's, it's yeah. violating people in our most private place, but you know, I, I've had a few, a few, I can think of at least three where they say, if it is us, I feel better about it. You know, having this idea in my mind that these beams were coming from a different planet, just doing these horrible things to me, it, it really didn't sit well. But if, if they are us, you know, it's more like a doctor's visit. It's our own species, at least. So it, it kind of gave them a little bit of peace with the, the, the situation, whether, whether it's true or not. Um, just that idea helped uh, help them come to grips with what's been happening to them. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to, to, to ask you about is we, I've come across in my years of research every now and again is that some of these craft have actually got kind of they are bi biological themselves in some way. Is that something you've come across as well? And, and do, you, do you put any weight behind that theory at all? Yeah, I do, um, especially because of the way the the beings who pilot them seem to interact with the machines themselves. It, it seems like there's almost this conscious control beyond just pushing buttons. They, they, a lot of yeah. people describe buttons too. Uh, Travis Walton, when he escaped um, and went into the control room, you know, he sees buttons and, but the, the craft changed when he went in different places. Like he went to the center of it and the whole thing disappeared and he could see right through this thing that was opaque before the lighting is really interesting and is described the same way in all of these different accounts where it's just sort of radiating from nowhere. They don't see individual lights, but the, the craft itself seems to have to be lit in some way. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I assume it's still some type of material, but if it has some biological components to it, or, or it's a part of the material itself, I, I wouldn't be surprised, especially because the way they can seem to change shape um, in certain cases, not all of them, of course, but uh, there are videos that seem to show the craft warping, bending, yeah. changing shape. And whether that's an aspect of the space-time manipulation or the actual craft changing shape, I can't say. But yeah, I, I think that's definitely something that should be looked at because it, it would make sense. Do you think there could be a possibility that it's the actual craft manipulating the camera or the person seeing it 
making them think that it's changing where, where it's not. Is that something you've touched upon at all? Maybe, yeah. Um, you know, they, they get called tricksters a lot, and, yeah. and there does seem to be a very tricky aspect to this, especially with the screen memories and owl figures and monkey figures and Mickey Mouse showing up at a kid's bedside and, and things like that. So, yeah, I'd, I'd say that's on the table, too. Um, just one, one other aspect of how they're trying to confuse us and keep us from really knowing what's going on and, and what they're doing. Yeah. Excellent. Um, a good friend of mine, Mr. Strafe Wilson actually, um, sent a couple of questions that, that he wanted to put to you. So, uh, the first one, in your opinion, what mechanisms would drive our current phenotypic characteristics to the point where we would look like the greys? Well, that's a tough one. Um, I, I try to avoid any sort of speculation about what's going to happen between now and then. And again, it depends on which then you're talking about. If it's the humans, nothing really. I mean, they look exactly like us. And depending on what time they're coming back from, it sort of indicates there's not a lot of change. And whether that's because there's not a lot of selective pressures, uh it's hard to say too, but you know, I, I've heard some people say, and I think a, a, a pretty well-known military uh, member, I can't quote who it is specifically, but I've heard this a couple of times, have said that if we live in space for even two generations, we'll look just like these grays. So wow. I don't necessarily believe that because we don't really have a lot of selective pressures anymore. We can buffer ourselves from the natural environment with culture in the same way that we have for the last three million years. So we don't really evolve in the same way that we used to, and certainly not at the same speed, at least not because of external environmental forces. We still uh, evolve because of gene drift and just random fluctuations and other things that happen in response to our culture. Um, people say if we lived underground, you know, our eyes would have to get bigger to see in the dark. And I, I just stayed away from all of that stuff and, and really just focused on what's already been happening consistently over the last 8 million years since we stood upright. These changes, if they continue into the future, are likely to make us look like what's most commonly described, regardless of whether we live in space, on Mars, on the moon, underground, in the middle of the sun. I, I don't think it matters. I think it's still going to happen. Sure. Kind of touches upon this, this, this other question, which... First of all, have you done any predictive modeling of timescales and could possible things like cataclysmic issues drive it in any way? Is that you know something you, you considered or is it, again, like something you said you didn't really touch upon? Uh, I didn't in the first book because that's a pretty esoteric taboo that we have. We're not supposed to talk about what we're going to look like in the future. Uh, I remember reading that, like the very first biological anthropology textbook I ever read remember exactly where I was too. I was upstairs in the library at Ohio University in this little back corner on the seventh floor. And I see this picture of like an alien. Well, it looks like a gray alien with the big head. And my house. like, oh, sweet. Somebody already did this. And then they're like, no, we can't talk about this because <laughs> it's, it's teleology. It's saying that the ends justify the means or whatever bullshit reason they came up with. But yeah. we should be talking about it because we can see these trends they're so persistent. Why can't we model that forward? And, and I actually am working on a project right now, uh, likely as part of a, a, a TV project, if it gets picked up, where wow. we're going to do that. We're going to create a 3D model. Um, 
I don't want to give too much away, but the sure. there's other things that that we want to do with that that I think could really um, help bring together both the scientific side and the the abduction contactee side. And it, it seems like you know as we move toward disclosure or whatever you want to call it. Obviously, you call it that. So I can see it in your name right there. Yeah. Um, but but as we move toward this, I feel like the contactee experience has sort of been pushed to the side a little bit. Now it's yeah. just a focus on the UFOs, these machines. And that makes sense. We have tangible video evidence from well-trained pilots and all of these different high-tech devices. But they shouldn't be left out of the conversation. They have a lot of knowledge that we should tap into and and their experiences shouldn't be dismissed just because we don't have a body being paraded around uh, at this time. So I'm hopeful that that we're able to continue with this project because I have some collaborators who I've been working with for years on um, various neuroanatomy, paleo, um, paleo neurology projects. and, And I think given our backgrounds and our knowledge of geometric morphometrics, CTs, MRIs, and, and modeling these things, especially shape components, I think there's a lot of, a lot of places we could go. So, so no, as, as of now, we haven't, but it's, uh, it's hopefully in the works. Excellent. And what about, we've started hearing a lot more in the last few years about biological effects on people that have come, you know, within a certain proximity of these, these objects. Do you think that it's worth testing these people to see if there's been any biological changes in them, whether it's DNA, blood or or any of that, or is that something you've considered or plan on doing at all? Yeah, um, absolutely. I I talk about it more in this next book um, because, yeah, a lot of them do have what seem to be radiation burns in many cases. Those have come close, especially when the device is powering up and moving away. Uh, They seem to get this blast of radiation. And what's interesting, though, is that most go on to live long, happy lives in the cases I've seen, at least. You, You don't see people really succumbing to those injuries and, and I remember talking with, I think it was Chris Mellon or somebody, and they were, they were saying, well, why would they do this to us? Why would they hurt us if they know that their device has this effect? But it doesn't seem to really hurt us in a long-term sense. I, right. I, I've you know documented seven or eight cases where these people got blasted with this radiation, and they've got some welts and some burns and things that are very weak and tired for a couple of days, but then they end up being 85 years old. So if, if, it, if it's radiation in the way that we understand it, where they're getting bombarded with all of these atoms and things that are tearing them apart from the inside, you'd expect them to die from that. But right. that doesn't seem to be the case. So, yeah, I think we should definitely be looking at those. I also think we should be taking seriously those that claim to be hybrids because right. many of them seem to have uh, ESP, precognitive abilities, just a, a deeper connection with this phenomenon and the conscious aspects of it. So I would love to get a sample of those and uh, an MRI, do an fMRI analysis, and then compare that to a control group and see you know, whether or not they have any um, detectable characteristics, especially while they're, they're making precognitive decisions or right. communicating with someone telepathically, as they say, 
we should be able to see that in an fMRI, whatever part of their brain's doing that. So I think there's so many ways this phenomenon lends itself to scientific scrutiny. Um, and I'm hopeful as the stigma continues to wane that we're able to start doing more of those things. Excellent. Great. Uh, a question from Laura Sosa. What research are you familiar with that delves into gene expression throughout the bioanthro record? And how might CRISPR be used in further explanation? Are you aware of CRISPR? Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, cool. It's just a gene editing mechanism where you right. can take specific genes that are targeted and then manipulate them by putting in other base pairs, essentially, to create okay. other effects. Um, I, I do think that CRISPR and other technologies could be a component of our evolutionary future. Um, it sort of brings up an interesting question and one that I, I don't really touch on too much, but if, if they are time travelers and they're clearly, they've been in our past too, our present and our past and likely deep past uh, based on many things in prehistory, were they manipulating us? Were they creating themselves potentially in some way? And I think that's what your, your viewer's question was about is are they or have they been manipulating our DNA to create something else. And I, I don't know. I, I try to stay away from that because of just, uh, well, for one, I can't know. So it would be pure speculation. Sure. But there also doesn't really seem to be any period in our evolutionary past where there was a major jump or anything. We can see an acceleration, but that seems like a natural acceleration that really goes back two and a half million years to the earliest members of our genus. So I, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of skeptical of any sort of broad-based manipulation. I think it's more self-serving that they're doing things to us now and in the past to help themselves in the future. But I, I could be completely wrong. Yeah, more of a self-preservation thing or, or preservation for all of us, our species as a whole. Um, but I, I guess I wouldn't be surprised either if I found out that in order to do that, they had to change some things in the past to avoid things. But again, that means they always did it. So nothing's right. really changing. They're just doing what they've always already done. Yeah, fabulous. Um, message here, shadows of your mind. Hello, Dave. Um, sorry if this has been touched on already, but NASA had a set of twins on their books. One went to the ISS, one stayed on Earth. When he came back from space, his DNA was different to his brother's. That's interesting. Yeah, Not Kelly. Interesting. What's his name? Kelly something? Maybe his last name was Kelly. And I know who he's talking about, the short, bald guy uh, with the twin. And, and yeah, you'd expect that, especially because of radiation. There's uh, Our electromagnetic field really protects us from a lot of dangerous solar radiation that you I mean, they obviously try to protect the astronauts in the ISS, but sure. yeah, I mean, you'd expect some sort of variation. Um, a lot of things happen with regard to his physiology, his, his eyes changed, his vision changed. Um, yeah, it, it seems like that was a great experiment and, and twins are perfect for those types of things. You, if you if you have an identical twin, you can make a ton of money doing do. research. All right, get into it. I'm get paid. Twin. Yeah. <laughs> gotta get that green absolutely yeah um 
I've lost my train of thought there. <laughs> oh, the your new book. You keep mentioning this new book. Are you able to give us an overview of where that, what you're taking, you know, further past your old, uh, not as I can say your old book. It's not that old, but yeah. What's the new one about? Yeah, I wasn't uh, trying to do drops or anything either. It's just know, it's, it re sense. it's relevant it's to relevant, a lot of things yeah. we've been talking about. And, <laughs> and it's more or less written. I uh, made the mistake of sending it to some peer reviewers who I'm paying in wild game sausage. And it just doesn't have the same contractual obligations that, uh, <laughs> that other yeah. types of contracts do. So I just got it back um, from three of them, or at least most of it, after three months of not being able to work on it. Um, but it is pretty far along as far as the content goes. So I, I, I find myself referencing a lot because, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very different approach. The, the first book really looked at the, the science um, behind the craft, the beans, um, but the long-term evolutionary changes that we've been talking about. And it only brought in a couple of actual encounters, witnesses, contactees, abductees. Um, th this next book sort of takes the opposite approach where it looks at 20 case studies um, in the context of this model and the other models that are out there, at least the most conventional of them. And uh, yeah, just really tries to see how it fits, obviously still make a case for this extra tempestrial model, but see what works, what doesn't, really bring in other critiques of right. this idea, uh, weigh their merits, um, but but look at it in the context of what these people experience and, and the patterns, most, most importantly, uh, the consistency among these accounts, I think is, is really important because really all we have is the descriptions of the craft, the beans and what they're seen doing. So yeah. that's what we have to start with. That's what we have to go by at this time until we're gifted a craft and gifted, you know, some, some of these individuals, these visitors. So, but looking at all these different accounts, I think you can see patterns if you look at enough of them. And, and that's been really fun for me because I didn't get the chance to dive too deep into the fact that I didn't even know Jim Penniston was when I did my first interview on this subject, I think is telling. So I've really gone deep into the, the contact modalities and all of the right. different things that happen to people and, and start to break those down and, and look at the, the patterns and sort of an, an abductive approach. Wow, that's incredible. What's the time scale for release on that, that new book then? Um, I'm thinking we're still on track for early next year, probably. Um, I'd say spring at the latest. So Excellent. within six months or so, hopefully if things go to plan. I lost my um, I lost my formatter though. She graduated oh. and went on to do bigger and better things. And uh, <laughs> I asked her if she wanted to do this one. And she said, no, oh. I don't, I don't want to do that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so I, I'll still be soliciting help from others. And uh, it's, it's kind of fun. It's fun building a team. And we're yeah. all working together for the same ends. Yeah, each 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 time is different. Um, so I'm I'm excited. It's been fun. That sounds good. I'll make sure I read your book before the new one comes out. I, I literally <laughs> have it. I have a stack of books next to me now. Probably 10, 15 books that I've yet to read. It's yeah. never ending. It's I imagine that's hard. <laughs> it is when I'm trying to do this and other things. Yeah, it gets it gets difficult. Yeah. So you've got the TV thing in the works as well. Is that without saying too much, is that something we can expect to see next year as well? 
Hopefully. Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been doing, oh, it's kind of, I think I did six shoots over the last four or five months. It's been, yeah, I think I'll be on TV tonight actually talking about this very theory. Um, yeah, I think, I, I think I saw that. Uh, I don't know what time it would be there. If you, if you have the history channel in the UK or you're a listener that's not in the UK, I think it's eight o'clock uh mountain time 10 eastern uh, i'll actually be talking about this theory on a show called the proof is out there so i don't know what happened in post-production they might trash the whole thing uh <laughs> i'm a little nervous about where they fall with regard to the idea but i'm pretty sure uh, part of the episode at least is about this time travel model and there's um i've gotten it out in some other capacities too that i, I don't think i can talk about yet but sure. um if when when they're about to come out, I'll, I'll mention those. Yeah, that'd be great. I think people will be really, really interested to see. So, listen, I just want to thank you so much for for agreeing to do this chat. I really appreciate it. I find it absolutely fascinating. Um, we keep saying that we wanted to see more science coming into the subject, and we are. So, thank you. You know, I really, really do appreciate it. Um, so, before we go, where, where can everybody find you if they want to come and follow what you're up to? Uh, you know, I got all of the requisite social media sites that I, I try to keep up with. Um, there's a contact page through my website, just michaelpmasters.com. And, um, yeah, I, I try to keep up with information about speaking engagements and obviously information about the new book. Uh, I can also sign up to get on an email list through that same site. So, uh, yeah, michaelpmasters.com is a, kind of a good hub for a lot of these things. Excellent. I'll make sure that all of your links are in the description below for when the video goes live after, after, well, after, it's, after it's finished here. So, yeah, finally, yeah, thank you again. And maybe, you know, next year when, when your new book's out and that, you'd come back on and we can discuss it. That'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. It's been great chatting with you. So anytime. Fantastic. Thank you ever so much. And you enjoy the rest of your day. You too. Cheers. Cheers. Take care. Guys, thank you so much. I found that absolutely incredible. Really, really eye-opening stuff. Um, yeah, so thank you everyone that joined me live. Thank you everyone that listens to this after the fact. Thank you for the kind comments on the new haircut. Had to be done. <laughs> so yeah, guys, thank you so much. Now I'm going to be back here in on Monday with Kevin Knuth. So I'm really looking forward to that one. Um, it's going to be a great one. So join me there. If you want all the details for times and everything, that'll be on my Instagram tomorrow. Yeah, I'll leave it at that. Thank you ever so much, guys. Take care and uh, I'll see you on the next one. Peace. Mm -hmm.